0: Hello and welcome to the Mormon Stories Podcast. My name is John DeLynn. As always, I'm very happy and pleased to have you with us today joining us. Um, we always are very grateful for your listenership. As I mentioned in previous podcasts, we're up to about twelve or 1,300 downloads per episode now. Uh, I don't know how many people are double downloading, but that means close to 1,000 plus listeners of Mormon Stories Podcast. So we're very... Uh, grateful that that so many of you are tuning in and enjoying what we're doing. Uh, Again, as always, uh, thanks for your posts on the blog, those of you who uh, have visited us on the blog and have made posts. And most importantly, I'm just very grateful for those of you who have uh, taken the time to donate and have uh, donated some money to Mormon Stories Podcast to help uh, pay for the incidentals and the ISP provider and all the other stuff. Your donations are uh, very much appreciated. So, Thanks again to all of you for tuning in. Today we definitely have um, a very different episode uh, in store for you. In fact, it's the most uh, uh, different one that we've given because today uh, the tables will be turned. Uh, Just to give you a little context, a while back um, I started getting requests on many of the boards from especially people on ZLMB and View from the Foyer um, and uh, post-Mormon and ex-Mormon, the most common question that I'd be asked is, John, how in the world um, you know, do you stay in the church uh, knowing all these issues and dealing with all these issues? And it's actually, um has been interesting to me because as my listeners have tried to probe and understand my actual position on things, I find that uh, a lot of the liberal and ex- and anti-Mormons consider me to be an apologist Um, and you know, oftentimes a lot of the conservative folk find me to be a wolf in sheep's clothing and there's a whole block of people who just view me as a TBM, true believing Mormon, traditional believer. And, um, I've gotten enough questions and comments and requests that, uh, I've decided to go against my better judgment and, uh, do a podcast where I tell my story. And um, interestingly enough, as uh, some of my listeners and friends uh, became aware that I was intending to do this podcast, one of my good friends, uh, his name is Paul, stepped up and said, hey, John, I'm going to be in Utah uh, in the next couple weeks. How would you feel if I came and actually interviewed you? And so uh, this this friend of mine, Paul, is a buddy of mine who uh, worked with me. Uh, We worked together at Microsoft. We didn't actually work in the same group. But when I was going through some interesting times church-wise, my buddy Paul was one of the LDS folk that I turned to to work through a lot of the issues and to talk these things out. Um, So, Paul, uh, thank you for coming to my home all the way from Salt Lake City and joining us here in Logan for Mormon Stories.
1: Well, thank you. Really, the pleasure is mine. I've been a big fan of your podcast, so it's going to be fun. I, I don't have any delusions that I'll do as good a job as you at the interview. But, um, you know, we are friends. We go back a little ways. So I thought it'd be fun. And, I, and it's all the way from Seattle, not all the way from Salt that's Lake. That's right. That's right. I mean, I am going the distance here.
0: Right. Yeah, you came <laughs> just for this, didn't you? Brought your whole family here just to do this podcast. Exactly right. Well, we're grateful for it. So um, without any further ado, I am going to uh, do what's least comfortable for me, and that's to give over full control and power to Paul. And Paul will now lead this interview. All right. Well, John,
1: let's start at the beginning. How far back do your roots go in the church?
0: Well, uh, as my listeners will uh, maybe have heard before, um, I I come through, a, like many Mormons, a long line of pioneer stock. Um, my middle name is Parkinson, so Samuel Rose Parkinson, who was one of the early apostles of the church or one of the early leaders. Um, is one of my ancestors. And then, uh, through another line, I'm a cousin of uh, Ezra T Benson, um, who is obviously an ancestor of Ezra Taft Benson. So my grandmother is a cousin of, uh, Ezra Taft Benson. So, um, through both the Parkinson and, and Benson lines, I go quite a ways back. Um, my ancestors settled the Cache Valley area of Idaho, which meant that um, my mother was uh, born and raised in Franklin, Idaho, which is right near Preston. For all of you Napoleon Dynamite fans, my mom attended uh, Preston High School, was a cheerleader there, and um, was raised in a in a super uh, orthodox pioneer stock uh, household in in that part of uh, in that part of Idaho. Um, so my roots go way back. My father comes from a very different. Uh, line he was born in salt lake city um but he was born to blue collar sort of stock that joined the church were probably not in its earliest years but sometime later i don't actually uh, know enough about my my father's genealogy but but i do know that um, my father's parents weren't super active when he was born my father's mother died when he was one years old and my dad, uh, I don't even think he finished high school because his father was a ditch digger, and it was, uh, you know, tough times in the in the '30s and '40s in Salt Lake City. So, um, that's sort of a real brief uh, discussion about my parents and my my heritage.
1: So, uh, walk us through a little bit how you feel about that heritage. Uh,
0: you know, like like most of folk, I I'm pretty proud of my pioneer heritage. I I I really look at Mormonism as being in my blood. I I when when people talk to me about thinking about even leaving the church, I can't even conceive it. I, I think of it as if a Jew were trying to not, to be, un-Jew himself. Um, I, I view Mormonism in my bones, in my blood. It's who I am, and I, I view it as inseparable because of that, largely because of that heritage um, that I come from.
1: Okay. So. so how about your childhood?
0: My, um... So my parents, uh, when my parents got married. Um, it was an interesting thing because my mom came from this super traditional family. And my dad was really, uh, he, he sort of started getting active in the church after, in his young adult life. And so when he came into the picture, uh, my, my mom's parents weren't super excited about him uh, being around. My mom was already uh, engaged to the local hometown hero who had played basketball at the University of Utah. He was uh, set to be a lawyer. And uh, my mom was set to live the ultimate conservative, pre traditional Mormon life. And she really pulled a fast one on her whole family by choosing this uh, son of ditch digger, pulled himself up by his bootstrap, super charismatic, um, you know, charmer. And so um, uh, when my parents got married in the, in the St. George Temple, um, they uh, they soon left Utah, and my family has pretty much always existed outside of the Utah Idaho area. So, um, you know, they lived in, in in several parts of the United States, but I was uh, born in in Boise, Idaho, but only lived there a year. And after leaving there, I lived in uh, San Francisco for a year, and spent almost my entire uh, youth and childhood growing up in Texas. So, I spent five years in Dallas and then uh twelve years in Houston, which is where I was uh, predominantly raised, I consider myself a Texan and a uh, Houstonian so that was my my birth in my very early years
1: mm. so you lived in Texas until you were how old
0: till i till um b y u so oh, okay. until I graduated from high school
1: okay so tell us a little bit about that what what, you, what were your experiences like growing up in the church, having mormon roots having uh you know a family that you know your parents come from this background where dad might have not have been the the first choice um did that affect you as a child is it you know what was what was the relationship like with your grandparents and and with the church in general in texas
0: yeah it's interesting we were really isolated from my um from my extended family i didn't know my dad's side of the family at all because we always lived in texas and we visited my mom's side of the family maybe once or twice in my whole upbringing. Um, we did have an aunt that lived nearby, uh, but we were very isolated from our Utah family and I only visited Utah maybe twice in my whole 18 years of growing up and they would have been in my teenage years. So, uh, the Utah culture and the whole Utah mindset is, was completely foreign to me by the time I uh, went to BYU. So I, uh, first of all, I was very distant from my extended family, but longed to be near them. And also, uh, I just I, I idealized Utah because I figured that's where all the the real church stuff happened, and we in the mission field, as it was called, um, you know were carrying the torch to help spread the gospel. But I always considered Utah to be the real deal in my mind, and I always sort of longed to someday be a part of uh, of that stuff but But I love my upbringing i uh When we moved to Houston in third grade. Um, the church was incredibly important to me. I, we lived in a small town called Katy, Texas, and um, the church was teeny in its infancy. There, it was an hour drive to the stake center from my from my hometown. Um, we didn't have a ward building. We we met in a small house across the railroad tracks from the high school in uh, downtown Katy. Um, in this small house that we rented, uh, you know, there were probably twenty families that attended. You know we'd have to pull out the chairs and set up sacrament meeting and uh, the mimeographs were used remember the purple paper with the purple copies where you'd hand crank um the ward bulletin and in the, in the program oh yeah that's good stuff yeah the, the memories are just really profound uh, uh, as a child seeing the branch grow uh, bishop uh, president chudley he was a farmer he was a soybean and a rice farmer he was our first uh, branch president just a down-to-earth country boy who had a a bunch of really tall, strong sons. Um, It was an amazing uh, experience to see that small branch grow eventually into a ward when we built the chapel, and we all helped to build the chapel um, and, and had that first ward conference where the branch was made into a ward as the chapel was built. I can't describe how incredibly fulfilling that was to be a part of it.
1: How old were you at that time?
0: uh i would have been about 10 or 10 or 11 when the, when the when the ward building got built hmm. um and then you know i just remember primary teachers being extremely important to me taking time to make me feel special um i i remember making close friends in the branch and in the ward uh and and just having an incredibly positive primary experience um and and the church was just interwoven into uh into my my early years
1: how would you say that the uh, atmosphere was at your house were you pretty traditional conservative did you have regular family night uh, family prayer that sort of thing were you scripture reading family
0: because because my dad um had his uh you know lower income upbringing he was always trying to uh be super successful. So my dad, I think he wouldn't mind me admitting was a workaholic for most of the time I was growing up. He, he started out as a policeman. Um, then he started, um, uh, being the chief of police. And then he got into state level, um, safety programs and sort of being a state level bureaucrat. And by the time we'd moved to Dallas, he was a, a GS 16 in the, in the, in the federal government. Mm -hmm. He, he has pictures of him with Nixon and Ford he he served on safety cabinets that that advised the president of the United States so he he was really able to um to do well but he worked a lot and traveled a lot and he was gone quite a bit what took us to Houston was he cashed out and retired from his federal government job and decided to start his own business and he started this company called barter systems which was a company uh designed in the in the 70s to sort of circumvent tax law By allowing the bartering of goods and services between people and it was this fad in the the 70s during the disco era that um, he built into a multi-million dollar business while we were in Houston Mm. but when the IRS changed the tax code and and caught on to what they were doing um, eventually the business came crashing down and he lost everything and went bankrupt so Mm. um, but dad wasn't home a lot and so um, we would try and have family meeting every once in a while Um, but we probably weren't consistent in family home evening. We would try and do scripture study, um, but I wouldn't say that we did it all the time. Oftentimes we try and read those illustrated books of Mormon and and read from there. But um, I would say that 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 traditional Mormon stuff was spotty, uh, family-wise, but we always went to church. We were always very active in church. My parents held callings. My dad was a state clerk, so he held stake-level callings. My mom was always very active in music stuff. And uh, even though family-wise we weren't the ideal family internally, um, uh, we still were very active in the church. Yeah.
1: At what age would you say you acquired a testimony?
0: <clears throat> Ooh, that's hard to say. I think I—I uh, th- I should say that I, I was the youngest of four kids, so I had, um, and, and there was about four to five years between each of us. So my oldest sister, Gina. She left for college when I was probably in second grade. And my oldest sister, my second oldest sister, Julie, was in high school by the time I was in third or fourth grade. So my oldest sisters, they were kind of in that late 70s, early 80s era, disco and, and um, you know, uh, hard rock and stuff. Saturday's Warrior. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Um, so they they have in- interesting, fun histories to tell as well. Um, the person closest to me is my brother, um Joel. And, um, you know, he, we were only three years apart. So really my upbringing was just me and my brother, Joel. And, um, but, but, but probably what you may be getting at is a really seminal moment in my family's life and in my life, which was when I was about in the seventh grade, when my parents, after having been married for 24 years, um, got a divorce. And, um, that was a big shock uh, to me and to my family and to all the members of the ward, because, you know, probably like most families in, in many circles, we were viewed as a very strong, cohesive, uh, good-looking, you know, successful family, and it was a huge shock to me and to a lot of people to have that family disintegrate.
1: So, you know, walk me through a little bit of how you remember reacting to the divorce and how you remember the community around you.
0: The, the, that time. Yeah, the most the most poignant moment for me, I mean, it was was. Uh, this real uh, memorable moment of irony when I was still in primary. Um, I was sitting up on the stand and we were having the special primary program. And it was probably a couple of weeks after our parents had broken the news to us and sat us down and told us that dad was going to leave and, and stuff. And uh, I remember the theme of the primary program was families can be together forever. And so here I was, sitting up on the stand as a 10 or 11 year old, looking down on uh, my mom and maybe a couple of my siblings in the audience. My dad wasn't there. And we're singing, you know, I have a family here on earth. I want to be with them through all eternity. And I'm looking down there and seeing my mom in the in the audience or in the, in the congregation, you know, crying. And that was a, that moment of irony uh, made a pretty deep imprint on my soul because, you know, throughout church you hear sort of how things should be and how things ought to be. And it's a, it's a pretty dramatic thing for a kid to to have that irony of um, the ideal versus the real strike so hard. And that was an incredibly hard time. The nights of my mom crying and hearing her crying through the walls of my bedroom as dad was gone and, um, uh, seeing how that affected my older sisters and brother who were in high school and and college age. It was an incredibly traumatic and um, distressing time.
1: Did your parents both stay active in the church after the divorce? Uh,
0: Yeah, uh, sort of. Um, Yeah, during the immediate years following, they both stayed active, yeah. Um, And so, so that was interesting. Um, to have uh, have them stay,
1: and were they so they your father stayed in the town, you yeah, the yeah, same ward, and yeah, Dad
0: was really cool. He uh, he just said, I, "I'm I'm taking off, but Mom, you know, you can keep everything. You can keep the house." He was good about paying child support and alimony. I visit him on the weekends. He and Mom never made public fights, or there was never a bitterness. The divorce was very amicable basically cuz my dad just gave my mom everything she wanted and um and dad it, it was kind of bizarre because dad married uh within a year of leaving um he remarried um and mom remarried uh and both of them married non-members um on the rebound and um within a couple of years both of those marriages had failed and um and so uh it was a really traumatic time and a really confusing time for a young kid but but in some ways you could say it was the it was the ideal divorce because there wasn't nasty feelings in terms of people being ugly or bitter, and uh, um, eventually when they each got to their third spouse they married perfect people and they've both been married now almost as long to their third spouse as they were to each other, mm. so uh, I have I have beautiful wonderful step parents now but it was a really hard thing uh, through high school,
1: and so your parents now are both active in the church still
0: um uh i would say that my mom is active in the church and my dad is semi-active
1: okay and what's your relationship like to them now
0: oh i'm real close to both of them and uh, they're really supportive and loving and 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 good to me so how
1: do they they feel about your podcast
0: um well, interesting, I, I'm really fortunate because my dad's always been a, a real non-traditional Mormon. And so, um, uh, yeah, he's he he he's been great. And, and my mom, she's been a Dialogue subscriber for about 15 years now, and uh, she's been wonderful as well. So I'm really lucky because I, I'm probably able to be more vocal and open and honest than a lot of people are. Because I've got parents who don't judge me and make me feel bad. They worry about my happiness. They worry about how their grandkids are going to turn out. But they don't make me feel like I'm inadequate or inferior or a project. And I'm really I'm really lucky that way.
1: And they feel pretty good about us discussing their personal life here on the That podcast. I can't say.
0: <laughs> that I, I can't say.
1: <laughs> okay, so uh, let's go back to your um, teenage years in Texas. Your parents have just been divorced. And you're having that experience up uh, in the primary program. You know, walk me through how did the community react to the situation and did that affect your relationship to the church?
0: Yeah, um, you know, my uh, it was interesting because my dad, uh, he probably wasn't embraced by the community in a very loving and supportive way. I think he felt really judged, alienated, ostracized and that was a that was an interesting awakening for me about just how humans can sometimes fall short of the ideal um so so you know that was that was an important dynamic but not one that impacted me because i i felt like um you know there are consequences for for behavior and so i didn't get too hung up on that that wasn't a big problem for me what was most significant for me was that because my my mom had to go back to work and my family was all split up uh i the church was there for me for junior high and high school in a way that i just can't describe i loved uh ward dances i loved scouts i loved uh uh seminary i went to church every sunday when my parents weren't at church or were gone i went by myself i got myself up at every morning at 5:30 i never once had a parent wake me up for seminary ever and i you know a seminary president i uh Um, once I got into high school, I got into, you know, the honors programs and and sports and stuff, but church was always my, my only thing. Church was the core of who I was. It was the reason I existed. The youth programs in Houston back then were phenomenal. We had, um, we had missionary weekends where we'd all go, go on splits with missionaries as an entire stake. We had temple trips where we would drive to the Mesa, Arizona temple and, and do baptisms for the dead, um we had uh, dance festivals we had stake road shows we had regional scripture chases we had you know incessant ward and stake dances uh and youth conferences and i just i the the youth the youth experience in my childhood was just astoundingly amazing and i i just can't say enough about how incredible those leaders were how fun the kids were And how spiritually uplifting and rewarding my youth was and how the church was completely responsible for that and you know I I never tasted alcohol once I still haven't to this day Um, even though I grew up in a real party town never you know tried a cigarette never tried any type of drug my wife is the only person I've ever been intimate with I mean uh, and, and you know I was also student body president and very popular in high school so it wasn't like I didn't have opportunities to do all that stuff But I just took the church really seriously. I had great bishops, great seminary teachers, and um, I just say I had the ideal youth experience with the church. It was everything to me. And everything that I am, I feel like I owe to that uh, foundation and upbringing. Mm.
1: Your friends uh, during junior high and high school, were they primarily the kids in
0: your ward? Uh, I had two sets of friends. I I, I did have a, I did hang out with a lot of the kids in the ward and stakes. Truthfully, though, uh, I was really girl crazy. So, if I had to say who my my close girl well, my close friends were at church, it were the girls that I became boyfriend and girlfriend with because I I lacked intimacy. I feel like I lacked some intimacy with my family because my family was broken. Mom was working. My siblings were off doing whatever they were doing. So, I i found a way to get intimacy through having lots of girlfriends so i had a ton of girlfriends i started kissing when i was you know seventh grade i never had a curfew i was allowed to date as much and whoever i wanted and i just went hardcore dating girls and so my fondest memories people wise are the girls that i dated in stakes and wards and regions around me but because i was uh you know varsity basketball and student council president and honors stuff Um, I had a a small circle of very close friends who were non-members. And that was interesting growing up in a Baptist town because um, religion would always come up. There'd be girls who would want to date me in high school. And some of these girls were some of the most prominent, cute, attractive, smart girls in the whole town. And so we'd start dating and then they'd find out I was Mormon and their parents would find out. And inevitably I'd, I'd get the conversation where the girl would go, John, I really like you, but my parents don't want me dating a Mormon. And they were usually Baptist, and so um and and even my best my best friend Joey in high school um we we sort of fell apart our senior year as he got more and more into his church, and his parents started giving him a really hard time about being best friends with the Mormon. Mm-hmm. He started giving me a hard time about the doctrine of my church, we started having debates and arguments about it, and it really caused a rift, so I was sort of a sore thumb a thumb a stick out sticking out thumb in my hometown. But because I was academically and athletically and, and other things sort of inclined, I was able to overcome a lot of that prejudice and stuff and represent. But I, I, I will say that I'm embarrassed in many ways about who I was back then. I I, I sort of thought, I'm from the one and only true church. I'm pioneer stock. I, I probably, it was probably a type and a shadow of what it was like for the Missouri Saints. For all these foreigners to be around as these aliens come in, and to feel like they're God's chosen people. I really had a sense that, that I was better and more special than everybody because I didn't drink, because I didn't smoke. And um, and a lot of people thought I was probably arrogant and judgmental and, and uh, self-righteous. And so that was an interesting tension, that looking back I wish I had been a little more transcendent, a little more enlightened. But at the time I was just so into how true our church was, how, how righteous I was, um, that, uh, you know, that's how I acted and behaved sometimes.
1: So why do you think you had adopted that kind of worldview?
0: Well, I, I had an, a really amazing seminary teacher. Who uh, His name is Lawrence Layton. And just to give you an idea of the type of person Lawrence Layton was, uh, he was in his you know late 50s, early 60s when he was my seminary teacher. He was my seminary teacher for three years. If you'd go into his house, you know that picture where all the prophets are dressed in white, all the LDS prophets are dressed in white, and they're all sort of sitting in a row? Yep. He would, he would say, come here, John, let me just tell you something, you know, and he'd say, okay, I've been in his home. I used to home teach him. He was my, you know, he, I used to go to scouts with his son and he would go through and like name half of the prophets and tell me how he'd had personal experiences with them. He was, uh, if ever there were a Bruce R. McConkie Mormon, you know, Lawrence Layton was, he, uh, I, I was taught openly that, that blacks were black because they were less valuable in the pre-existence in seminary. Can I interrupt you for just a second? Sure, sure. Can
1: you maybe clarify uh, what a Bruce R. conkey Mormon is to you?
0: Uh, yeah, it basically, uh, a, a very fundamental, orthodox, um, straight out of Mormon doctrine or the Journal of Discourses type uh, teachings. And so um, heavy emphasis on the second coming is coming soon. Um, he would tell us that we were of the chosen generation, and that he had he had an impression from the Holy Ghost that the second coming would be in our lifetime um that uh he He used to tell us that he had such a command of the Holy Ghost, and he'd do it in a very humble way, but he would say that he could sit in the back of the chapel and sacrament meeting and spiritually tap people on the shoulder so that they would look around and actually feel like they had been tapped on the shoulder wondering what had happened. Um, the two object lessons that were the most dramatic for me were one where he was trying to teach uh, about the um, um, the adulteress and he, who, who's without sin, cast the first stone. And for that seminary, he we came in and all the chairs had been pulled from the front of the room. We met in one of the ward buildings. And he just introduced the lesson and said, today we're going to talk about the adulteress and... and and hypocrisy and stuff, and what I've done is I brought some stones here. And what I what I'd like to do, I know that I've offended some of you, I know that I've hurt some hurt some of your feelings over over the time that I've been your seminary teacher. I know I haven't been perfect, sometimes I haven't been as prepared as I'd like to be. So um I've brought these stones and I'm gonna place them before you and I'm gonna kneel down and provide you with the opportunity to um extol justice upon me. And he in this sixty year old man curled up in a fetal position on the floor in front of us and wept dramatically for about five minutes while we stood there and just watched. And um, it was an incredibly powerful spiritual experience for me. I thought this guy had a direct connection with God. And the other uh, object lesson that that is really memorable for me was the time that he wanted to portray the crucifixion. And he actually brought in a life-size cross into seminary, and he asked me to portray jesus, and so he brought in nails and a hammer, and he um he asked me to writhe in pain as I, as I lied on the cross, and he stuck nails between my fingers and nailed me to the cross in front of the in front of the students. Wow, yeah, this was my seminary teacher, and I bought it all. I believed that he had special gifts, I believed that we were Saturday's warriors. Gearing up for the second coming, I was focused on signs of the times. Where were the twelve tribes? um, You know, spiritual gifts, healings. That was my seminary experience.
1: How much of a role in your general being do you think that played? I get a sense that the church was highly influential during your your teenage years, um, especially post the divorce. Um, What I don't have a good feel for is how much you feel that you were influenced by um the non-mormon portion of your community
0: yeah i i viewed the world i viewed the world as mormons are the chosen people um sent here to stand up for truth and righteousness in a wicked evil world and that the rest of the world either had to become mormon or um or suffer heavy consequences and I had a persecution complex because of the teachings about our church history. I had experienced persecution in my life. Um, so it was very charged. I, I I viewed the rest of the world as needing to repent and convert to Mormonism. And I took every chance I could get to tell my friends why they should come. I invited friends to general conference. I invited friends to you know, my, my ward meetings. And I just had a Mormon worldview. Every data point that I processed in my life... Went through a Mormon lens, of uh, you know, how does how can this be reconciled with the one true church, with the prophet, with the priesthood, with apostles, and with God's plan of of bringing a millennial end uh, within you know my lifetime. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but it was an incredibly charged, um, millennial, chosen, uh, super righteousness focused existence.
1: How did you view your? fellow church members were they all up on that pedestal with you or
0: yeah i i was incredibly idealistic and and somewhat naive i mean there were bad things that would go on but i just i had so many youth leaders who just seemed like spiritual giants to me and so many women who seemed to be willing to sacrifice so much to put on all these youth programs and and great sacrament talks and i just i viewed myself in a fellowship of of truly gifted blessed saints now there's a there's a backstory to that um, as to what was really going on that I can tell you later because a lot of these people ended up getting divorced leaving the church having abuse um, but I didn't see any of that I wasn't plugged into it I viewed it as a utopian society and in many instances not perfect but divine in its uh, elevated enlightened sort of uh, status so it was incredible Incredible all right, John. so we're
1: at a point now where you have a pretty conservative and pretty mormon centered worldview and you are viewing the world through that lens. You're a senior in high school involved in a lot of extracurricular activity. What happens next
0: that's interesting because uh um, you know in junior high, I was sort of lost and and i um you know I got some fs and had a lot of discipline problems and But because my brother took me aside when I was uh, uh, an eighth grader and told me, uh, you know, John, I haven't done too well in school. Let me give you two pieces of advice. Um, Get in all honors programs in high school. Join every honors class that you can qualify for and get the best grades that you possibly can. Um, This was a real shift for me because none of my family is academic. Neither of my parents got bachelor's degrees growing up. And all my older siblings had pretty much done poorly in school. So I... Um, I took my brother's uh, advice to heart and I, um, I really started excelling academically. By the time I graduated from high school, I had a four, three GPA. I was 11th in my class of 350 people. Um, and I was offered, uh, well, scholarships to pretty much any school that I applied to. So, um, it was interesting when I went to the guidance counselor, um, uh, and, and she asked me what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a military chaplain. Um, a Mormon military chaplain. That's sort of, again, how enmeshed Mormonism was in my life.
1: Where did the military come from?
0: I just, I don't know. I just, it's patriotic. You know, it's something that's religious, but I can get paid for it. Um, I considered being a seminary institute teacher, but um, it, it's just, uh, it's just another example of how Mormonism was just on my mind all the time. But I was just... I, I was a good basketball player. I probably could have played Division II basketball. I'm 6'6", for those of you who haven't met me. Um, I played against some, some guys in the Houston area that went on to play college and pro. I could have played Division II basketball. Probably could have gotten uh, scholarships to Ivy League schools maybe, but but BYU is the only school I applied to. I had n- no interest in doing anything else. I wanted to go to Zion. I, I wanted to go to the Lord's University, I wanted to go to Utah, which I viewed as Zion, and I wanted to meet a bunch, a whole plethora of Mormon guys and girls, date like crazy, and just feast in Zion. That's all I can say. So I got a scholarship to BYU and had an incredible freshman year at BYU. Um, lived in the honors dorms there with a bunch of incredibly gifted, smart people. I had this uh, interesting scholarship where I had to actually maintain a GPA above 3.9 to maintain my scholarship. And so uh, I went to BYU, just stone set on getting a 4.0 while I was there. Um, And so I made this interesting goal for myself that I wasn't gonna kiss a girl the entire first semester that I was there. And that was a real uh, traumatic thing for me because I was dating like crazy. Uh, But I was able to go an entire semester and not kiss anyone. Uh, which seems silly to you probably, but for me, uh, (laughs) it was a real achievement uh, because I had just dated so wildly in high school and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, it was cool. I loved uh, my freshman year. I ate it up. Uh, All the religion classes were incredible. Um, I was able to take, actually, Book of Mormon from Jeffrey Holland. Wow. Um, uh, That was a really, really good experience. And I actually, his daughter, Mary, was actually... um, in my ward so jeffrey holland's daughter mary was in my ward i went out with her um several times was she
1: during the non-kissing semester she would yeah we did i didn't (laughs) kiss
0: mary i can't can't say that i did um but i did date her i really really liked her um and when i went on my mission she was one of the people that i hoped would wait for me Hmm. um but uh it was really cool because she actually introduced me to um president holland and i got to play tennis with him one time and i beat him 6-1 (laughs) <laughs> uh, so that was my, you know, moment of fame. Uh, um, well,
1: did, did attending BYU, uh, change your perspective at all?
0: It just, it, you know, think about BYU. You, you, you have these wards, it's all these guys getting ready to go on missions, all these girls who are longing to marry, return missionaries. You have all these honors religion classes where you're just, uh, eating it up, um, All these guys are getting their mission calls throughout the year and and slowly going on missions. You have prophets and apostles coming to speak to you at BYU for assemblies. Um, You know, it's the first time I got to see Salt Lake Temple. It's the first time I really got to see um, General Authorities up close. It was just absolutely astounding. And uh, it just reinforced and turbocharged everything that I felt and believed. Yeah, it was
1: amazing. And and how long did you attend BYU before you went on your mission? Just one year. Okay. Yeah. So you've got a mission call to go where?
0: Yeah. So I uh I was I was called to serve in the Guatemala City North Mission. Um I went there in nineteen eighty eight. Um I should say I was born in nineteen sixty nine, so uh I went to BYU in nineteen eighty seven and left for my mission in nineteen eighty eight to Guatemala City North. Mm hmm.
1: Well, I know there's a whole podcast dedicated to this topic, but why don't you give us the highlights of your mission?
0: My mission was uh, you know, the MTC was astounding. Uh Pinniger was my uh the MTC president. He was incredibly inspirational and charismatic. He would tell all these stories with his raspy voice that would inspire us. He would weep and cry and 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 preach like a a a Baptist preacher at times. And his wife was so sweet and she drove a BMW and she was kind of kind of cute for a older lady uh it just it was just again utopia um president hunter was the prophet at the time uh i believe and he actually came to the uh mtc and spoke to us in his wheelchair and uh i just i just ate up at the mtc absolutely loved it and uh yeah my mission itself guatemala was a real shock um and uh you know uh the the poverty and the third world stuff and trying to learn the language is really overwhelming um but i had a really uh incredible mission in terms of what i was able to do and accomplish i uh um i was able to be a branch president twice i was able to open an area that had no members in it at all um and and build up a branch as branch president to where now there's actually a chapel in the in the town that i that i opened up um uh I served in another branch where I actually had to disfellowship a member, and, and serve on a church court. It was quite a, a awakening, maturing experience for a young boy. Hmm. Um, but <clears throat> as you've read and I've, I've written extensively about this, the most the most traumatic thing for me on my mission was uh, was dealing with the fact that we were the second highest baptizing mission in the world. So um, early on in the mission, I discovered that. Uh, that a couple companionships were baptizing over 40 people a month. And um, these th- this companionship was, was eventually promoted to uh, zone leaders. And then the zone of four or five mission uh, companionships were baptizing over 120 a month in the La Laguna zone. And, um, and once I found out uh, the tactics of these missionaries, which was to go to soccer fields and play soccer with the young boys, and then to... Uh, and girls, and then to take them all back to the chapel to cool off, where they would baptize you know nine, ten at a time, ages seven to ten, it turns out seven year olds were baptized, um, parents never knew discussions were never given, um, kids had never attended church and never again attended church. you know that was the type of baptisms that were that were happening um, in regions of the mission, not all over the mission but in regions of the mission and When I found out those tactics, I expected fully those um, zone leader to be punished, but to my amazement, they were made assistance to the president. And um, and the mission was just basically out of control with an emphasis on numbers and certificates and rewards and incentives and parties for the highest baptizing mission of uh, companionships, etc. Go to my very first podcast to learn more about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that uh, experience was devastating to me.
1: How did you reconcile it? Was it the missionaries' fault? Was it the uh, mission president's fault? The church's fault? Was well, that something that would naturally happen? What was
0: one of the bizarre things about the mission was that um, the missionaries who were most successful numbers wise were also the biggest partiers. So I remember early on my zone leader thinking my zone leaders were God. Um, you know, seeing that he had these Janus Cat Perry tapes. And and um someone had made a joke about him, so I went and flipped it on and, and heard that he had Van Halen and Rush dubbed over his James Cap Perry tapes, you know. Um and then I'd hear jokes about how the zone leaders would go with their cars travel to Honduras or El Salvador, uh and or, or play basketball games not on P Day um or, or be in leagues, basketball leagues playing, you know, not on P Day, and I'd and, and I'd hear about pool parties all these crazy things that the zone leaders and APs were doing. And I, at first I thought it was just the zone leaders. And I'll just, I'll absolutely never forget going to the APs, just distraught when I would learned that my zonies were partiers. And I just went to my APs and I said, you know, I just, I, I, I have to tell you, I don't want to be tattletale. It's just that I love this work and I believe in it so much. And I just want to tell you, you know, these elders are partying. And and I'll never forget his response. He just kind of looked at me and he shaked his head and he said, "You know, Elder DeLynn, loosen up, man. Don't be so judgmental." And it and it turns out that I discovered later that the, the APS were partying with the zone leaders, and that they were all in on it together. It was in a, and and the most the the top leaders in the church in the mission and the top Baptizers were also the top partiers because they'd get all their baptisms in early, and then they'd party for the rest of the month. And uh you know, this brings me back a bit to high school. Um, This one little experience I had where I was in love with this girl and um, she didn't like me. And, uh, but she liked this other guy who I knew was sleeping around. He was the kind of guy who slept around. And so I remember this party one night where uh, I was hoping Christiane would be there and she uh, never showed up. And then I heard in the crowd at this person's house at the party that she was off with this other guy. And I just remember looking at everyone and I said, guys, come on. They're probably doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Let's go out and find them and let's rescue Christiana because she's going to be dragged down by this guy who's not going to lead her to virtuous places. And you could hear a pin drop as all all my high school friends who weren't Mormon just kind of looked at each other and looked at me. And, and just and it was then that I realized that these people weren't like me they they weren't they didn't view the world in the same way I did and I was a completely a foreign naive uh, clueless individual uh, as they were concerned and I and I mentioned that because that's exactly how I felt when I talked to this AP I realized that a huge chunk of the mission was was there for reasons different than the reasons I was there for. They took this a lot. And, and frankly, a lot of these people were Utah, kids raised in Utah. Um, and it was absolutely stunning and devastating to me to see how many missionaries, and these were the good ones, who were just absolutely didn't take things as seriously as I did.
1: So did you have a feeling that it might have been a difference between Utah missionaries and mission field missionaries?
0: Um, I don't think it was clear to me at the time, but I I, I started sort of doing the math later and, and wondered whether that was part of the dynamic. Hmm. Um,
1: did you feel that this was something that was entirely uh, invented by the missionaries themselves, or did you feel that the church leadership or the mission program itself uh, encouraged this or was in part responsible for what was happening?
0: You mean the the baptisms? Yeah um and the partying I, and everything else like the that. the partying i felt like was the missionaries um just being uh you know inappropriate the uh the baptism stuff i i put it on i eventually once i confronted my mission president about it and he made excuses for it and and supported it and got angry at me for um calling him on it i felt like it was a rogue mission president who had aspirations for being uh, a general authority and just kind of let things get out of control. Um, to be honest, uh, Elder Ballard um, came and visited our mission, maybe three-fourths into my mission, and pretty much called our mission to repentance for um, retention and, and low, low quality of baptism sort of issues. And, uh, and he actually set the bar that, that, he actually made a policy in our mission that everyone had to have all six discussions and have been to a church at least twice before they could be baptized. And so I had reassurance that the brethren up top weren't supporting this type of action. And it wasn't too long before my mission president had made loopholes and excuses to water down those rules that Elder Ballard had made. So I kind of I eventually came to feel like, first it was the rogue missionaries. Then when I confronted my mission president, it was, it was an overly ambitious mission president. So that's kind of how I viewed it at the time. Um, it, was, it was after I had come home from my mission, and uh, was well, actually I was sent home four months early after I confronted the mission president about it, and he stuck me in an area where um, I uh, uh, developed a horrible asthma condition, and when I told him I couldn't breathe in the area, he brought me back and, and sent me on a plane the next day home, which I felt like was to get me out of the mission. Um, but when I came back to, to Arizona to finish my mission in my last four months and was called as his zone leader there, my mission president was Dural Woolsey. And Dural Woolsey um, had just been called as a general authority. He ended up serving in the Philippines. But I asked Dural Woolsey, I told him the whole story, thinking that he would call Salt Lake, Salt Lake would find out about it, they would go, you know, release President, excommunicate him, and that would be it. Um, but uh, I was really disappointed a week after he told me he's going to call Salt Lake when he told me, you know what, John, I talked to Salt Lake, they just don't want to make a big stink about this, your president's only got like six months left to go, they just decided they were just going to let it slide. And that was the first time where I even started suspecting that uh, high-level church leaders even had the capacity um, to be uh, flawed and, uh, make major mistakes or to be bureaucratic or to be political. Uh, it it would have never even occurred to me that that was a possibility. I, I considered these men completely beyond the capacity, uh, to allow anything like that to happen without huge negative forceful consequences.
1: Did that realization shake you up or was that, uh, sort of a lifted burden?
0: No, it was devastating. I, I went back to BYU as a sophomore completely depressed. Um, my, the, this, this mission that I had spent my whole life preparing for, uh, that I had served, you know, willingly, I, I had over 120 baptisms during my mission. Uh, I never, you know, never watched a movie, never watched TV, never read the newspaper, uh, you know, never listened to any inappropriate music, never woke up late, you know, always went to bed on time, I was a hardcore psycho obedient missionary during during my time there. And my whole life had culminated in that moment. And it would it just you know, the follow the brethren attitude in the MTC and the obey your leaders and exact obedience and they talk about the stripling warriors and they obeyed with exactness. I I had given, you know, twenty one years of my life to uh being a servant of God, to helping him fulfill his uh his desires on the earth. And I, I could not have been more des- devastated by my mission president, by the mission, many of the missionaries I served with, and by the the church hierarchy's reaction immediately after my mission. Now I have to say that, you know, my brother's mission was nothing like mine. The Arizona mission that I served in was nothing like the Guatemala mission. So I'm not trying to let people think that this is a this is the norm for missions. Mm-hmm. But the, but the way that it was uh, handled was devastating to me. Mm. Yeah. And and I was severely disappointed that that my mission president wasn't you know removed immediately and excommunicated mm. <laughs> for perverting God's holy ordinances, you know. I mean that's how I saw it at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Have you had any contact with him since? Yeah. Um I, I went to uh I, I was really disappointed because when I when I went to a missionary union shortly after um my mission president had been called he told us at our missionary union he'd been called to serve on the church missionary committee Hmm. and so i'm thinking okay great so now what he was able to implement in our mission plugged into the church hierarchy he's now going to sort of be able to influence how the church baptizes worldwide Um, so
1: so actually can i interrupt real quick yeah did you have the impression at that time that the church leadership was chosen based on the relationship you had to the hierarchy, or did you see it more of a anyone could be called to any position, and it was the Lord's will that would dictate it?
0: Yeah i I was still I was still very naive and idealistic, and I started so I started to get hints of that. I mean, I, I otherwise I would have never conceived it possible that that president could become a member of the Church Missionary Committee, because if God would God would never choose that. So that's when I started wondering. But it was many years later before I actually drew the lines and, and started saying, "Wow, these men can't be deeply flawed or misled." Um, no, but at the time I was still, hmm. I was still just shell shocked. Uh, still a TBM, but trying to piece together this huge gaping hole in my worldview of what I thought the church and the, its leadership should have responded like during that experience. And 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 I do need to throw in that. A couple years after my mission, uh, I wrote a letter to Dallin H. Oaks telling him everything that happened. And he actually called me on the phone, apologized for what happened, talked to me all about how I was doing, and followed up by sending me speeches where he openly denounced to future mission presidents those tactics. And he did a great job in helping me, saving me from going to 60 Minutes or 2020 or tabloid journals to expose. Uh, what i thought was rotten corruption mission practices so Mm. so to download Chokes' credit some would say it was to you know pr and to keep spin from getting out of control others would say he was genuinely reaching out for a hurt soul at the time i was very touched by what he did and i'm grateful for it
1: yeah no it's great i mean it seems like he really took a personal interest to you and so stepping back a little bit you're just coming off your mission you are still very conservative and very traditional in your belief, and you still have the, um, you know, very Mormon-centric view of things. But you're a little distressed because of the experience on the mission. Yeah. So what comes next?
0: So when I when I got to BYU as a sophomore, um, I had no idea what I was going to study I- I- for my undergraduate degree. I just did general ed my freshman year. So um, I figured, you know, the best I could think of was I now speak Spanish. I've had some international experience, I'll do international relations. So I went to the international relations office and I would say one of the most miraculous um, moments of my life was meeting Ted Lyon. Um, Most of my listeners will have no idea, uh, will have no idea what the Lyon name represents, but it turns out that a very important um, figure in uh, 20th century Mormon intellectualism and Mormon history was a guy named T. Edgar Lyon who served with Lowell Bennion as the leaders of the University of Utah Institute in the 40s, 50s, and early 60s. And Ted Lyon is the son of T. Edgar Lyon, who's one of these two pioneers of Mormon thought and openness, who were who viewed as grandfathers to the dialogue in Sunstone Generations later. T. Edgar Lyon and Lynn Lil Benyon were the grandfathers in many respects. Well, Ted Lyon was of the Sunstone stock, and this was in 1990, before the, you know, the September 6th had happened, before Cecilia Farr and all that stuff happened at BYU. So, you know, BYU professors were still participating in Sunstone um, to some degree. And um, there was a real vibrant honors program at BYU where liberal uh, Mormon thinking, believing professors would hold these honors colloquium classes, where instead of taking random general ed, like a psychology class or a a science class or an art class or humanities class to fill general ed. You would take these combined 12-hour um, colloquium classes over a one-year period. So you take six credit hours one semester and six credit hours the next semester. And instead of it just being one topic, they would mesh science with art, with faith, with religion, with humanities, all in a in a comprehensive class that would end up fulfilling four general ed requirements across humanities and science and history etc but it was done in a way that was extremely intellectual and rewarding and dr lyon encouraged me to join his honors colloquium class along with clayton white and uh, lynn england and it was there that i received an introduction to you know liberal mormon thinking 101 because they had lectures you know with vander would come in and talk about um, evolution and he would talk about vestiges and he would talk about, um, <clears throat> you know, the history of the earth. And, and you know, I would, I would suddenly be uh, enlightened to consider that maybe things weren't as simple as Bruce R. McConkie had taught about evolution. They would talk about abortion. They would talk about, um, uh, they would talk about uh, some early church history, but not, not very much. Mostly a lot of the social issues. But um, these were incredibly important men to me. And, and, and you know, you'll probably ask me a little bit later about my involvement in Sunstone, but uh, I can tell you for sure that these men, along with William Bradshaw and Lamont Tullis, um, William Bradshaw, who, who taught uh, a biology class at BYU, but also taught an honors religion class. Um, these men who showed how you could reconcile thought with faith, who were intellectuals, who knew all the issues, yet they were bishops and stake presidents and mission presidents simultaneously, were fundamental in helping me step back and say, let me tell you about our history, John, as a church. Let me widen your view about how things really are. And let me tell you why your faith shouldn't be um, disassembled at what you've experienced. But instead, let me give you reasons why you might even want to be reaffirmed in your faith and even more committed to it um, in spite of the experiences you've had. And it was them who steered me away from going to 60 minutes or 2020 who steered me towards writing that letter to Elder Oaks and who in many ways were just absolutely crucial in helping me and an entire generation of young BYU students get an enlightened more matured deeper view of uh of how to reconcile thought with faith and uh, I just I cry, I I cry now because all the, the honors program has been gutted at BYU there are no more colloquium classes like that. All the professors have left, you know, um, who who did that sort of thing. And and there are no... I don't think that this is happening at BYU anymore. But at the time, the student review was alive. These honors colloquium classes were alive. And you could get a sort of Sunstone Dialogue 101 experience meshed in with a very faith-promoting experience at BYU that was fundamental in helping me not leave the church.
1: So would you say that... By the end of your experience at BYU, your perspective had shift entirely to a liberal perspective, or you know were you still clinging to the way you thought on your mission
0: um no i had, i had, I think i I had this dark hole inside of me um, that that never went away but uh through through these professors i I reconstructed my faith in a way to where I still felt. Very devout and committed to the church. And I didn't know anything about the church history at this point, so none of that had hit me yet. I just knew some cultural things, and they had dealt with a lot of the social and the controversial, you know, political issues that made me realize that I could be a nonconventional Mormon and, and still have a place. And So no, I wasn't liberal. I think I would have been considered still extremely conservative by most people in the world, and even in the church. You're orthodox in your beliefs at that point? Oh, definitely orthodox in my behaviors, hmm. but um, a lot more open-minded in my beliefs hmm. and willing to consider alternative views, and um, and and not uh, suspicious but sympathetic for liberal sunstone dialogue type Mormons. Yeah, I actually did subscribe to sunstone and dialogue during the last few years of my uh, time at BYU. And I I, I eventually, I don't know how much our listeners know, but there was this huge thing. David Knowlton was fired from BYU for, he was gay, but also for publishing stuff about Latin America that the Brethren thought would endanger missionaries there. Um, Cecilia Farr and, and Gail Houston were fired from BYU for talking about feminist issues and for talking about Mother in Heaven. The September sixth, you know, happened while I was there, if, if I've got my dates right, um, and you know, there was a huge sort of turbulent time at BYU uh, where um, academic freedom was was challenged. Um, it's a very tumultuous time, uh, so it was a cool time to be there. Um, but uh, but I eventually uh, left, still feeling committed and dedicated to my faith, and very uh, excited about getting married in the temple and having kids and living the Mormon life.
1: So apart from the sort of, you know, um, behavior following the church program and that sort of thing, how would you say your spirituality changed or didn't change from the time that you were in your mission to the time you left BYU?
0: That's a really interesting question. Um, and I probably shouldn't admit this, but I will. I, during my sophomore year, I was still hardcore reading the book of Mormon every day. And my, my, uh, my roommate Russ, who's now in a bishopric, um, he was a, he was a philosophy uh, major at the time, and he just looked over at me and he said, "Why do you read the Book of Mormon every day? There's so many other good books you could be reading." And uh, and I, I do have to say that that uh, my my scripture reading uh, tapered off while I was while I was at BYU, uh, but my prayers were still very consistent. And my church attendance was was still very consistent.
1: Did you consider yourself a, a spiritual person, someone inclined to spiritual feeling and that sort of thing? Or I, I'm trying to piece together myself when you describe your your view as very I don't want to say elitist, but maybe exclusive to Mormonism. Yeah. You know did did you feel that you were um, spiritual that time? Did you feel that you were spiritual later? You know, how does that play out? I, I did.
0: I, I, I think I've always I think I always had aspirations. Someday to become a general authority, to be honest. I, that was my mindset. So I viewed myself as, as gifted. I viewed myself as devout. I viewed myself as valiant. And uh, I really felt like I had a very bright future in church leadership and in uh, righteousness <laughs> throughout my life. Although there was this whole dark hole inside of me that it was a demon that I was trying to slay that was also I wore on my sleeve, especially during my junior and senior year, that some people uh, probably might not have seen me as I saw myself. But I still saw myself as a Saturday's Warrior, for sure.